This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. Today, we have an incredibly special broadcast, the full hour with legendary Washington newsman Sam Donaldson. I had the privilege of working with Sam at ABC News. We collaborated on the Sunday talk show this week, a show that he personally anchored for six and a half years. Now, for many Americans, though, Sam Donaldson is just that guy with his high energy and his news-making questions and, of course, that voice. We'll talk polyoptics and presidents with a man who's covered every presidential campaign since 1964 and knows a thing or two about the political stagecraft we talk about every week. Sam Donaldson, welcome to Polyoptics on POTUS. Adam, it's a great pleasure to be here. We worked together so many years ago, and it's good to see you again. Well, it's wonderful to be speaking to you. And uh, one of the things that I have enjoyed so greatly in my career is the ability to have worked with legends in the broadcast business, you among them. And I've learned a great deal from you. But today I'm hoping that we can pull back the curtain a bit and hear some of the stories and some of the insights of your many years covering the presidency and the people who would be president. Well, Adam, we'll certainly do that. But remember, the word legends is just one separation from the word calcified. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, Sam, a, a lot of people don't realize your history. You served in the United States Army. You had a uh, history as a broadcaster in radio. And when you finally showed on the scene in Washington, D.C., it was radio, again, that really threw you into the mix as a major and important reporter before you ever got onto television. I think it's almost apropos that we're going to talk about some of these great events that you've covered here on radio, what really gave you your start in broadcasting. Let's face it, Adam. Radio is the most intimate form of public communication there is. Uh, People can listen. It's the old pictures in the mind from hearing something. Um, It's often said that you get the idea of what someone looks like because you've listened to them all these years. Then when you see them, they don't look like that at all. I mean, some great big voice turns out to be somebody who's not that big. And somebody has a little thin voice like this. They told me, for instance, uh, I wasn't there, that Abraham Lincoln had a high, thin voice. Four score and so Well, it doesn't sound that impressive. But, of course, on radio, something that sounds impressive, you can create anything you want out of it. You, when you made your break into television and came to ABC News, ABC was not the juggernaut of television broadcasting that it became, as you came up with so many others. Uh, And one of the things that I was hoping you might talk to people about is, what was it like to be the third place broadcast professional that you were, even when you started to take on some of the bigger roles. Uh, legends, again, in broadcasting were people that you knew and had had worked with and seen as you came up, and yet here you were, new to the scene, a Sam Donaldson that had not made his mark in television yet. Well, one of our great anchor men in, in those days, Frank Reynolds, used to say that if you ever got on the FBI 10 most wanted list, the best place to hide was become anchorman of the ABC Evening News. No one would find you. Well, ho, ho. Because in those days, being number three, we still had a larger audience than the three today have combined. 
And we were number three. And I must tell you something, Adam. We weren't smart enough, at least I wasn't smart enough, to realize we weren't any good. We thought we were just as good as all the big boys. <laughs> now, we realized that when we went to a story with a film camera in those days, and CBS had three film camera teams, we'd have one, and if they'd have a helicopter to get their film back to a processor somewhere, if we were out in the countryside, we'd have a motorcycle. We understood that. But it was a, it, there was an esprit uh, in those days that I think, looking back on it, we didn't have any entitlement to, but we had it. At what point in your television career did you begin to appreciate the power of the medium? We talk about polyoptics, this mashup of politics and optics and this grand theatrical element that has proliferated in our uh, presidential politics. It's a stage show that's covered by particularly credible and very important people, and yet you are also shedding uh, some light on the things that people don't want you to see or the things that you appreciated that no one saw from the bullpen camera position. Well, I think it was Vietnam where I really began to realize the power of television because it was the power of the pictures. The little girl crossing this bridge with napalm on her back, uh, thatched huts going up and villagers crying because the Marines were burning down uh, their village in order to save it, it being a Viet Cong village, you understand. Uh, and the, the television pictures, I think, along with the casualties, naturally, helped turn the American public against the war, not the arguments on the Senate floor. So the pictures, as I have come to believe through my career, uh, both covering the White House and, and working inside of a White House to create the imagery that supports the message, to your mind, really play an, an enormous role in, in shaping perceptions. Yes, and a lot of uh, serious people say that that's not a good thing because you can't carry out a foreign policy when, in fact, in a war, for instance, people are dying on both sides, but the aim and goal may be worth it when a public doesn't really concentrate on that because the public is busy with its own lives, selling insurance in Dubuque or running a a store in in Texas, Plano, Texas, or someplace. But they see the pictures, and they say they're horrified by that. So Henry Kissinger, for instance, will really, if you sit down and talk to him, (laughs) what he's going to be semi-off the record, will say that one of the things that uh, hurt us in Vietnam was, was the pictures that I've just talked about. Now, I take a different view, but there you are. If you can't tell just by his voice, you are listening to Sam Donaldson of ABC News. He's here with us on Polyoptics, and we're just beginning what I hope will be a a grand discussion. Uh, Sam, you covered just about every presidential campaign with shoe leather on the ground from 64 to 88? Well, yes. Yeah, the last, some, some losing the last bookends and some winners in the middle. The campaign on the bus was uh, 1988. But I've covered every campaign since in one form or another. Uh, not just an armchair. I would go out, even in the last one in, in 2008. I went out three or four times just to watch the candidates on the trail. Because you can't really sit someplace and read the New York Times and the Washington Post and Bill Crystal and uh, get a good picture of how people are reacting and remember, people who vote are the ones who are going to decide the election. And how do they decide it? Well, frankly, they decided not taking a litmus test look at 28 positions the candidate has. Well, I like most of these. Or if they're a one-position person, well, he's wrong on that one. I don't care whether he's right on everything else. I won't vote for that person. Most people in the center who control close elections, as you know in this country, presidential elections, 
they decided in kind of amorphous, do I like this person? Uh, do I trust this person? Do they, do they speak to me? I can't tell you how many times in a, in a campaign, beginning in 64 with Barry Goldwater, whom I covered, uh, someone would say, well, I like this guy, and I'm going to vote for him. And I said, but do you realize that you feel very strongly on the abortion issue, and, and this person's position is just opposite? And what I don't care, they'd say to me. Uh, yes, I wish he were, but I like him uh, or her. Uh, so I say to people who are going to run for public office, yes, I want you to be serious and I want you to have positions and I want you to stand for something, but it's the presentation in the final analysis. If you can't come across as someone likable, you're going to lose. Well, help us understand a little bit from your perspective then. The presentation has really evolved. These campaign stops that occur, especially uh, in the smaller towns today, are so much better staged. There's signage, the camera placements are very thoughtful, everybody's trying to create that image. But walk us forward from when you first started uh, on the road with President, was it much more organic, was it more authentic, or was there some real forethought going into the staging of these events and what the local press picture might look like on the cover the next day? There was some forethought. 1960, I didn't cover that. I wasn't a reporter in 1960 for that campaign. But it, a lot of people look to it as the first campaign in modern times that went down this road that you say, let's walk down. And we're uh, talking about Nixon-Kennedy. Yeah, we're talking about Nixon-Kennedy. Not just the first debate, which is so famous, but, but Kennedy on the road, more than Nixon. But in 1964, I covered Barry Goldwater. Newspapers were still catered to mainly by the candidates. We were along television, radio, but it was the deadlines of the newspapers that dictated when the speech would be given and where and what have you. And they were formal presentations more than informal. Barry Goldwater shook some hands, but it wasn't this open shirt. I'm just Barry, you know, although that's what he called himself. Uh, it was a more formal presentation. Uh, then as you move forward, though, going to, well, 68 was a bad year because of Vietnam. 72 also distorted by Vietnam. But you get to 76, it's Jimmy. When I was signed to Jimmy Carter, I knew his name was James Earl Carter. And I was used to people calling themselves with these serious names. Just Jimma, he said. I'm Jimmy, I'm running for president. Well, I thought, what was this? And of course, everyone laughed at him. Everybody in the United States knew that he, he couldn't be the nominee of the Democratic Party, let alone president, except one person. Jimmy Carter didn't know that. <laughs> That's an indispensable quality if you're going to run for office. How does that stand in, in contrast to 2008? where we had the most technologically advanced, the most... And, and people should know that Sam Donaldson has been on the leading edge, believe it or not, of electronic news gathering, not only from when mm. it was cameras with film to videotape to live webcasting on the Internet, which you have been doing for well over a decade. Well, uh, 2008, people were still for a long time be examining that race. What actually was it and, 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 and what happened and what have you? I'll just give you my take. Uh, Barack Obama was a new guy on the block and brought with him many, many attributes that people liked. He was likable. He was eloquent in so many ways, people said. He carried himself. Uh, it was clear he might be the first African-American president of this country, and a lot of people thought that would be a breakthrough worth having him with all of that. But I'll tell you something. He won the nomination because she 
didn't organize the caucus states. She so, thought she was going to be the nominee and didn't bother. She won all the big states on Super Tuesday and coming back, but there were 13 caucus states, and he organized them, and he got eight delegates here and 14 delegates there, and she got practically squat. Had she organized the caucus states, she would be the nominee of the Democratic Party, and I suspect the president of the United States. That's what that campaign was all about. Sam, the elements of presentation uh, usually do come down to the most personal elements. The principal himself, not what's behind him or what he or she is wearing, but how at ease they are with themselves, how courteous they may be to someone that they're speaking to or a question they've got in the audience. Is this something you've seen politicians become ever more polished with, or is it something that the people who really were strong in this regard, who were true politicians, always innately knew? Well, I think that's a good point, Adam, because if they try it because someone tells them to be polished, and this is the technique to be polished, you know, wear, wear brown or <laughs> be alpha or what have you, that doesn't work. And if you have an innate ability, as the very good people who run for public office seem to, the ones who succeed, then, then it comes sort of naturally. One of my favorites, I mean, you served George W. Bush for a while, was from the 2000 election. There were three debates with uh, Al Gore, and they debated back and forth on a lot of issues. But, but the question was, how would one of them come across as someone you liked better, and maybe therefore you trusted more, and, and all of that? And I think the problem for Al Gore was the first debate a lot of people remember he came across as schoolmarm gore. Bush would say something and he'd go, ah, as if, oh my goodness, how can anyone be that slow or what have you? And then afterward, his handler says, you can't, people don't like someone who acts as if they're superior that way. So in the second bait, he came across as namby pamby gore. I mean, butter couldn't have melted in his mouth. Al Gore, but hardly engaged to George W. Bush. And they told him after that when they said, no, no, you, do, you have to be strong. You have to be president of the United States. So in the third debate, he marched across the stage, almost invaded Bush's space, you know, demanding uh, sign off on this, that, or the other. In other words, Al Gore, who I think is a perfectly decent, and, and, and his record speaks for itself as a public servant, uh, someone who deserves more praise than condemnation, didn't come across as an authentic person. <laughs> George W. Bush did, and I think it made a world of difference. Your reporting uh, and the way that you've helped people see events around the world have included uh, international events. One in particular uh, stands out in memory for people of ABC News, and that was a trip that you took to Bosnia with a team in 1982. Mm -hmm. uh, forgive me, mm -hmm. uh, and, a, and a young producer who was uh, uh, an amazing producer, uh, David Kaplan, was on your team, and a man who is today the president of ABC News, mm -hmm. a man I worked for as well, Ben Sherwood. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that trip and the tragedy that, uh, that befell uh, Mr. Kaplan. Well, David and Ben and I were working for a program titled Primetime Live, a magazine show in which Diane uh, Sawyer and I were co-anchors. And um, Milosevic, Milan Milosevic, uh, the late dictator of Serbia, uh, former Yugoslavia, got the bright idea that a man named Milan Panic, an American citizen, but someone who had been born there, uh, should come over and be prime minister. Milosevic thought that would help him with his uh, relationship with the United States. So 
Panitch did, and we thought that'd be a great story. Here's an American citizen who is now prime minister of uh, Serbia, Yugoslavia. So we went over, and we were going to do the story with Milosevic and with uh, Panitch, of course. And Panitch decided to go to Sarajevo, which was just heating up as a very hot spot and a very dangerous place. And he, we went with him on his airplane to the airport. And I said to uh, David Kaplan, my number one producer, great friend for a long time, and Ben Sherwood, said, you guys stay at the airport. Because I was riding in with Panitch and our one film crew in an armored vehicle. Okay. Well, we rode in. But David decided, as uh, Ben told me later, he said, well, you know, Sam is going to need us. And he caught a ride with a, a press van that had come out to meet Panitch. And 500 yards along the road from the airport to Sarajevo, a sniper simply shot at the rear of the press van. David and Ben and one other person were sitting on the rear jump seat, and David was in the center. Sniper couldn't see anyone, but he knew that some people must be in the van. He shot, and David was fatally wounded. Those moments, and there are pictures of you and Ben with um, flak jackets on, and there was preparation. Not everyone had a jacket, and David suffered that fatal wound. He did not have his on, while his junior producer did have one, and he made sure of it, uh, as I understand it. But this is not the first time that you had been involved in or seen violence like this on a political stage. Uh, as we tape this interview, we are uh, 30 years almost to the day from the moment when President Ronald Reagan was shot and nearly killed outside the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. Lynn Nasser has told reporters at the hospital that the president was not wounded. He was wounded. My God. He was, the president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, the, the president was hit. He was hit in the left chest, according to this, but he is in stable condition. And the typed information I have is that he is okay. Speak up. The president was hit. One, my God, the president was hit. All this that we've been telling you uh, is incorrect. We now must uh, uh, redraw this entire uh, tragedy in, in different terms. The president was hit today. He was hit in the left chest, but we are told he is all right. He is at George Washington University Hospital. Sam, you were just feet away from the president at that moment covering uh, Ronald Reagan. Let us know a little bit about what you did and what you saw and what you appreciated uh, on that day. Well, Reagan had finished his speech inside. It was coming out to his limousine. So we went outside. We were reporters and camera crews and lined up. There was a rope, but this was not a press area. Anyone could be there, the public as well as reporters and camera people. And the president came out, headed toward his limousine. And another reporter and I began to ask him with loud voices, I hesitate to use the word yell, questions, because at the time it was a very difficult situation in Poland. Would the Soviet Union suppress this Polish spring, this Gdansk shipyard spring that was bringing freedom to Poland? And maybe he started to answer. I don't know. If you look at the video, he looked toward us. And at that point, John Hinckley Jr., who was about five feet away from me, six times. I mean, it's so quick. It's not like you, well, let's think about this. Six times. I knew it was 
gunshots, pistol, and I watched the president. Because at that instant, I saw that bodies were falling, but the body I was interested in was the president of the United States. I was meant to cover him. President Reagan had just finished delivering a speech in the Washington Hilton Hotel to the AFL-CIO Building Trades Unions. He walked out the side door. Along with another reporter, I began to call to him about Poland, wanting to know what was new about Poland. He turned to us to the camera line, and suddenly shots rang out immediately to my right and no, no farther than 20 feet from the president. Six shots were fired. I did not immediately realize that President Reagan had been shot because he had a quizzical look on his face but showed no great pain as far as I was concerned. It's amazing how your recollections and your reporting on that very day, as we just heard, mirror up. Those those moments were just burned into your into your psyche, I imagine. No, oh, absolutely. Uh, Jerry Parr and his uh, number two Secret Service guy with Reagan pushed him in the limousine, the president, and the limousine took off immediately. I think a chase car finally caught up with it, but it wasn't a motorcade. Everybody else was left. I took a quick look at the scene, but very quick, because what was my job? To report. This was an event that couldn't wait for examination. And you said, well, why didn't you just grab your cell phone? Well, we didn't have cell phones. Or weren't you live? Anytime a president of the United States moves, now CNN, MSNB, everybody's live. No, no one was live. Well, you have a two-way radio? There were some rudimentary radios that the people who were the couriers to bring back the videotape had, but I didn't have one. So I found a phone immediately in the lower lobby of the Hilton and dialed our switchboard. We had a switchboard in those days. An operator, thank goodness she hadn't gone to the bathroom, and answered it, and I said, plug me into our general line, which was our general reporting line. <laughs> and I remembered I'd seen this movie, Torah, 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 about 500 times, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And the first thing I said, this is Donaldson and it's no drill. This is no drill. <laughs> Shots have been fired at President Reagan, or words to that effect. And I did a radio report. The, uh, the polyoptics of all of this, Sam Donaldson, are what fascinate uh, me so much. You're reporting throughout that day, uh, as the news later came out that the president had in fact been shot, and the process story of who was where, who else had been injured, the real reporting that, that ABC and others furthered, really to this day, helped create one of the most lasting elements of people's appreciation of the Reagan presidency, his humor in the face of this mm -hmm. crisis. Talk to me a little bit about how people came to better know uh, this president, President Ronald Reagan, as a result of this, because you dogged him for the rest of his days. <laughs> you, you you chased him down for answers and for accountability, but you were there at the, one of the darkest moments, too, and you saw how things changed as a result of that. Well, I guess you see people, what they really are, at a moment of crisis, how they deal with it, particularly if it's one involving them, as it was involving Ronald Reagan. And the way he dealt with it was so heroic so magnificent. Now, people say, well, he was playing a movie part. Yes, in a sense, he was playing. That's what he was. He was an actor, and he was proud of that. And once told David Brinkley in an interview, I don't know how you could be president without having been an actor, meaning the bully pulpit. But the way he conducted himself in the hospital, uh, we're told that as he got out of the limousine that Jerry Parr, the Secret Service agent, had directed, thank goodness, to the emergency entrance to the George Washington University Hospital, he hitched up his trousers, Ronald Reagan did, in pain now, 
and he was well aware with the blood in his mouth that he'd been hit because when he went out in public, whether as an actor in Hollywood or as president of the United States, he went out looking the part. And you don't go out with your trousers rumpled down. And you walked in the emergency room and collapsed. And then, of course, all those wonderful things he said. All in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. I hope all of you doctors are Republicans today. Honey, I forgot the duck. And when he left the hospital, mercifully after about 10 days or so, to go back to the White House, someone yelled to him, Mr. President, when you go back to the White House, when you get there, sir, what are you going to do? He said, sit down. Well, of course, that's what I would have done. No, I'm going to sit down and sign three bills, and I'm going to examine the budget for... No, nuts. <laughs> it's it's amazing, though. Uh, for me, as somebody who had the opportunity to work with you as a professional journalist, to look back on that day, we've, we've heard a lot uh, most recently about the, the recordings of the radio traffic and the mm-hmm. Secret Service about what happened in those intervening moments. Uh, after the shooting and the president was taken away from the location where you were and when he ended up at George Washington University Hospital. But the last thing the president heard was Sam Donaldson's voice. Sam Donaldson was was <laughs> yelling a question at the president at that moment. Well, I don't know that he heard the guy. I suppose he uh, Who knows? He, he often yeah. claimed not to hear some Sam Donaldson questions, well, didn't he? Well, in those days, Ronald Reagan, remember, was a young kid. He was just 70. <laughs> ended his presidency eight years later. But uh, he would, if he heard a question he wanted to answer, he usually heard it, and he came over and answered it. If he didn't, he'd cup his hand to his right ear and say, oh, yes, what, what, you know, <laughs> like that famous uh, look of his. Uh, I don't know what he heard at that, at that instant. It doesn't really matter. Uh, what mattered was he did survive. And that assassination attempt and the way he handled himself and then later firing the air traffic controllers who had struck illegally. Now, if he tried to fire people or or dismiss them because they were striking for better wages or something and had the right to, but they didn't have the legal right to. And he gave them 24 hours and said, you know, and when he fired them, I think it shook us all. An American politician firing people in a labor union, um, and it took notice not only here but in the Kremlin we're told authoritatively much later, of course, uh, after the Soviet Union fell, that the people in the Kremlin said, <laughs> we're going to pay attention to this guy. When we talk about him being an actor, I think I've heard you say this before, that there is, to every great broadcaster, an element of character. I mean, you have to have a voice that resonates. You have to be a showman in, in some way to be able to carry the responsibility of effectively communicating in most serious and even in lighthearted times. You had a very witty repartee <laughs> with Ronald Reagan in, in off times. There's one moment I want to play for you right now and, and, and have you recall it for us. Mr. President, in talking about the continuing recession tonight, you have blamed mistakes of the past and you blame the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. (laughs) Oh, hey, (laughs) we all laughed? (laughs) I think he said something after that, but who paid any attention to it? That was one of the times when his one-line response really worked. And that was in the fall of 1982, when, yes, we were beginning to come out of the recession, but didn't really know it. His popularity rating, according to George Gallup, had fallen to 37 percent. And that was pretty low in those days. Um, presidents after that have exceeded it <laughs> in depth. But 
people think of Ronald Reagan as always being so popular. He wasn't then. And that's, of course, when White House correspondents really get up and have the bravado to give them heck. Well, you say White House <laughs> correspondents, but in, in reality, I think uh, the... The history of broadcast journalism was forever changed by one reporter who would stand up and would call out, even in times when it wasn't a Q&A situation. Was this a conscious decision on your part that, that, that you needed to find accountability for a president and you would ask this question whether or not they were prepared to, to take an answer or give, a, give an answer? Or was this something about making a name for yourself as a journalist? Well, I was lucky in two or three ways. When I became the official White House correspondent, when Jimmy Carter became president, I was almost 43 years of age. I had enough training and I had made enough mistakes and I had learned enough about how uh, the job should be done, in my opinion, that I was neither timid to do the job as I thought it should be done, nor, nor was I afraid to step out uh, because of a professional problem. And I was lucky that I had uh, people at ABC who were the bosses who supported me. One time when the White House called and suggested, I'm not going to tell you who, it wasn't the president, uh, suggested maybe I should be replaced because uh, they thought I was rude and all of that. Uh, the person listening, very nice to them, said, thank you for your view. I got a raise. Now, <laughs> now that, didn't, that didn't make me go out and try to be rude. I've never asked a question, Adam, that I meant to be rude. I have asked questions that I realized were going to be difficult ones. And, of course, I've asked a lot of questions that were, in retrospect, <laughs> who cared? I wish I had not wasted someone's time. But the best questions are ones that are, that, are, that are put very directly that contain only one question. If you say, well, what are you going to do about this, 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 and talk to me about that, well, they'll talk to you about nothing. So, you, so like the old torpedo man in World War II, hot, straight, and true, make a question that they either have to answer or it's clear they're not going to answer. They can't get away if you sharpen the question properly to say, well, I support the troops, and doesn't all Americans support the troops? That wasn't the question, sir, about the cost of this war. Who's going to pay for it is not, I support the troops. We are joined on Polyoptics here on POTUS, Series 110 XM 130, by Sam Donaldson uh, from ABC News. Sam, I want to jump forward and run through quickly some elements of two modern presidencies. We, we talked a little bit about you've had a hand in covering presidencies for so long now, but let's let's focus on George W. Bush, and then let's bring it all the way to the president, uh, Obama, and, and his administration. George W. Bush uh, made an art, I would submit, out of marrying the image to the message. Uh, everywhere President Bush went, it was very well thought out. There were backdrops. There was messaging. It was the kind of thing where if you didn't hear what the president had to say or perhaps even couldn't understand what the president said because sometimes he'd get jumbled up. That message was clear. You knew where he was. You knew what he was there to say. The events didn't run one together because it was all blue drape and American flags. What was your perception? I know we talked about how he connected with people as a real authentic American in some debates and, and on the, the trail. But when you think about his presidency through the stem cell issue early on through the 9-11 period and then into Iraq and ultimately, or Afghanistan and ultimately Iraq, give, give people a perception of how you thought the Bush administration 
tackled this polyoptics uh, challenge and whether or not they won that war? Well, there were two overriding events that shaped the Bush presidency, both terms in my view. One, of course, was 9-11 and the famous bullhorn in New York. And I think all Americans rallied behind him as the commander-in-chief and rallied behind the effort to make ourselves safe and, if possible, to get the guys who had done this. And I think during most of his first term, no matter what happened, that was an overriding consideration that was in his favor. Uh, Yes, you can say that uh, things were skillfully done to a large extent from the standpoint of the staging. But it really didn't matter that much, you ask my opinion. The second term, of course, it was Iraq. And now it was a flip-flop from the standpoint of a lot of public perception. His image was now of someone who maybe had made a mistake or was doing the wrong thing. Now, we're not going to argue that here, but I'm just simply telling you that everything you saw him do then was against the backdrop of the public debate, which was increasingly going against his policy. Whether that's right or wrong, history can develop. Uh, and, and that made a problem of it. And, of course, the, early on, the big thing was <laughs> landing on the aircraft carrier and declaring victory. And um, no matter how you spin it, well, it wasn't there was somebody on the aircraft carrier. We didn't know about this. What looked like a good eye at the time became the centerpiece of the criticism's ability to make fun of it. And uh, that hurt him. Well, did you did you feel that when you saw it? Did you have a reporter's sixth sense that this spelled trouble for him, or were you? Many people look back on that day in two thousand and three and say that was one of the best events I ever saw. No, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, (laughs) it would be nice if I could honestly claim that. Oh, I said, oh, wait a second, I would have underplayed that. I would have lowballed it. But uh, it seemed at that point that we might have pulled it off. By pull it off, I mean, we got to Baghdad in three and a half weeks. Statue came down. We were, we were roughly, and I know it was a little after that, we were roughly at a point that history may say, had things been done differently, we could have gotten out of Iraq earlier, and Iraq might have been better off from the standpoint of organizing its own society. Were any of the lessons learned from... Vietnam, at least in terms of the communications, you covered both wars. You have an appreciation of television broadcasting, popular uh, perception, and also a real understanding of what goes on behind the scenes in a White House in the prosecution uh, of a war. The same things to, to a different magnitude, let's say, that occurred in Vietnam from the standpoint of the official line versus the facts occurred, again, a different magnitude. In Iraq, it is human nature. It's not just the nature of people in the White House or the president of the United States to want to think that things are going well. And when things aren't going quite so well, to sort of say, well, let's not talk about that. Let's emphasize the good things. Let's find two or three good things. Never mind that we had a setback here, there, or yonder. But that's always a mistake because when it catches up with you, the fact that you didn't talk about it and, and come clean, if I may use that word, without being pejorative toward presidents that we've been talking about. Um, 
then, then you have double trouble. And I think that's what happened in Vietnam, obviously. We killed, by our body count, the number of Viet Cong that we said were there three times. And, of course, they won. Um, so somehow there were a few more, there was a few more came in. You know, and if you do that, and in, in Iraq the same thing, uh, if, if, if you keep emphasizing it's going to be okay and we're doing pretty well, we're making advances, when the facts are accumulating that we're not, you're in bad trouble. One of the things that we have taken a hard look at here at Polyoptics, Sam Donaldson, is the power of the Internet, especially sites like the Drudge Report, to give a frame for public perception, a singular picture, um, a headline that becomes someone's idea of what the story ought to be, maybe not what it is, but what it should be, and then people are tasked to go match this story. President Obama has been heavily leveraged into a number of international crises of late. Uh, this uh, Arab Spring from Tunisia through Egypt and obviously the ongoing campaign in Libya and, of, of course, what's going on in Japan, uh, this humanitarian crisis there. Talk for a second, if you will, about how you see Barack Obama handling this back and forth of being engaged and showing leadership and also bringing the American people into discussion and giving a, a, a reasonable uh, explanation for what our interests are. Here's one of the things that happens, and it, uh, again, is like a two-edged sword. Uh, on occasion, and in some situations, it could really aid this fast communication, this multitude of voices on the Internet, a president. And at other times, of course, it can just work against him. At a time like this, let's take Libya at the moment. It seems to me in the old days, a president would make a speech from the Oval Office, his people would talk about it, uh, and uh, there would be individual reporters out on the scene from major news organizations, but that would be where the American public got its news and got its impressions. Today, with all the bloggers, some informed and some totally misinformed, who are out there and you take your choice of who to listen to, a president doesn't have the ability to command the same kind of attention singularly for a message because no matter how skillful you are at the White House and how eloquent you might be as the president, uh, you have a cacophony of voices on the Internet that are competing against you. Did the president make a mistake? Did he lose an opportunity in not speaking to the American public uh, earlier this week from inside the White House, the Oval Office? Was that the right place to make an address of this magnitude? Well, you it was covered calculated so not to do that. It was calculated to be with the troops. I mean, be, be to, hey, it's American military that people are worried about once again getting engaged in a ground war or a war of any sort somewhere. So, so he, he wanted to be in that framework. I think, however, there are times when that kind of calculation, I mean, uh, they would take Ronald Reagan out and have him give a speech at Teddy Roosevelt's statue on Roosevelt Island here in Washington to show that he was for conservation when Mr. Reagan's conservation record, according to all of the people who studied it, was terrible, but they wanted to show the image. I think there are times when the image of the backdrop doesn't matter. It's what you say. And the reason the president couldn't give a speech earlier is we were making this policy up as we went along. There's no playbook. So they weren't certain. And to this very day, as we speak, Adam, I think they're not quite certain what the end game is in Libya or how far they're going to want to go to try to preserve an ouster 
effort of Gaddafi. And, and so what do you say? If you come forward and you speak, but you don't have a coherent message, it's better you shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Uh, you know, when, when the President of the United States uh, takes the traveling roadshow, and I say that with all due respect, uh, and, and, and he puts it all on Air Force One, as you've traveled so many times, and heads out to uh, major uh, nuclear non-proliferation uh, treaty uh, elements, or if he's headed even as the president was, uh, President Obama, just last week where he was in South America, Latin America on a trade mission. This balancing act of being engaged and caring for the principles that were important to the trip, but also as soon as you left town, all hell broke loose and you still got to be president. Give us some insight into how you've seen different presidents deal with that. I mean, the communication capabilities, the technology has changed. What's constant? Well, Sam Donaldson chasing presidents, constant. <laughs> well, but presidents running into trouble while they're out of pocket, also constant. So this was an important trip recently that President Obama was going to take to uh, Latin America, to South America, and, and to Central America. Well thought out, Brazil, Chile, El Salvador, all of that. And here comes Libya. Well, do you cancel the trip? These are important countries. They are anticipating this trip. They would see it as a slap in the face, no matter how we would see it. Well, he chose to go. And, of course, he was then criticized roundly for having gone. I suspect that we'd be at this very same point as we are today in Libya if he hadn't gone. But perception of what the public thinks is important. You know, in, Ronald Reagan was at his ranch in August when the Soviets shot down the Korean airliner, 007. And uh, what could he do about it? Nothing. I mean, uh, and he had communications and all of that. And at first, he didn't want to come back. And the late Mike Deaver and a couple of other of his close aides said to him, Sir, the American people expect you to be in the White House, and you should go. And so he got on a plane, and he went back. And, he, and they were right to tell him that. So, so it's the question of not just where are you that you can perform your job as president at a time of crisis, but how does it look to the American people? Do you think that this is why uh, the West Wing is is finding more former journalists uh, in its ranks, this idea that those lessons need to be relearned uh, every so often? I mean, clearly, President Bush and Katrina uh, is another example of maybe not having uh, been in the right place at the right time or not moved as swiftly as he might Yeah, have. there were a couple of points. The first point I would bring up is I don't... The people who thought when 9-11 occurred that it might be a general attack on the United States all over and pointed toward the president of the United States, you can understand their, their logic and reasoning. But in retrospect, and President George W. Bush knew it at the time but, but couldn't much do about it. He was caught up to take him first to Louisiana and then to Omaha or wherever it was, in retrospect, it was the wrong thing to do. And you say, well, that's because there was no attack on him. Yeah, I, I don't want him to have been attacked in any way, but the point was he needed to have come back to Washington. And you mentioned Katrina. Uh, you probably, because I think you were in the White House during I was, some of that I was time. still with ABC. I was actually were, with right. Diane doing an interview with the president, his well, first television Well, the people in the White right House would that. have a better view of exactly why he didn't seem to grasp the necessity to hmm. 
come forward more quickly. Why he thought he could just fly over New Orleans as if to wave when these people were practically drowning. That was about the worst idea. His father had made the same mistake at the Watts riot in California. Hmm. His father took several days, George Herbert Walker Bush, to go out after a riot there, and it cost him. Finally, uh, Sam Donaldson, in this interview here on Polyoptics, uh, I really want to get you to to answer two more questions for me. One of them is, Americans get their news from a host of different places, but when you have political affairs shows that have played such a major role uh, here in Washington, like um, Issues and Answers, Meet the Press, This Week with... David Brinkley, uh, this week with Sam Donaldson and Cokie Roberts and, 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 and the franchise like Face the Nation. These shows are really a way that Americans get to get into the issues and hear a lot of the most insightful commentary. How important do you see that genre of public affairs programming today? You've been at the heart of it at its pinnacle with uh, with David Brinkley. Will you walk us through that? Where, where do you see it today? I know you're still active in that realm and, and sought after as, as, as an analyst. Well, I think it's still important because people who care about what's going on can often on those Sunday shows see people who are making events happen, uh, explain themselves, uh, and be questioned by very skillful people. And the roundtables you can take or leave just as you choose, uh, agree or disagree with this person the roundtable or not, but, it, but it's the interviews by the hosts. I think they're still important, but if you look at the numbers and you look at where else people can get their news and watch and not watch, they're declining in importance. I think in some senses we have a, a bifurcated problem in this country. In one sense, we're better educated than ever before. More people are going to college. More people are going to school. I mean, clearly, you can't argue against the numbers. In another sense, we're dumbing down. Because if you look at popular culture, which often is more important than uh, David Brinkley, who I love, this great icon, and you look at the music. I mean, here, when I was 17 and going to school in El Paso, Texas, uh, college there, I was a disc jockey in the radio, and I looked at that billboard every week uh, to see what the top songs were, and I'd play them. Someone told me the other day, you realize the first three top songs on the billboard chart these days have the F word in the title. I said, well, no, I didn't realize that. See, to me, this is dumbing down. It's not a question of the word so much as the representation of what people think is culture, what people think is important. And I think this goes way across the board. If you look at our debates today, Adam, I watched the great civil rights debate in the Senate of 1964, the last stand of the Southerners to keep the jury segregated. I watched the Medicare debate in 65. People fought passionately on all sides of an issue, but when they had extracted as much as they could from the majority, whoever the majority happened to be in those days, it was Democrats, but there were coalitions, then they were swung behind the bill. In 1965, when Medicare passed, the Republicans fought it with the same arguments that they fought the Obama health care plan that's under such controversial pressure today. But in the end, it passed the Senate 87 to 13. Almost half the Republicans voted for it. This time, not a single vote. And I'm not trying to say this in a partisan way. I'm simply saying that we now, as a society and as a culture, are at each other's throats. 
uh, with a kind of background that makes communication with Sunday shows or so difficult because people aren't listening to see if they can get some information. They're listening only to see if they can get some more ammunition for their own point of view. I realized as I was just <laughs> listening to you there that uh, among all the things we've spoken about today, the one I didn't ask you about, and I think I'd be really remiss if I didn't, was uh, Bill Clinton. You spent some time as a White House mm. correspondent frontline again during the Clinton administration. And once again, and I don't know if this is correlative or not, but I can tell you, like having Mike Wallace coming up behind you, you know you're in trouble when Sam Donaldson's on the beat because something could happen, and oftentimes it does. President Clinton uh, had a very serious bit of trouble, including an impeachment. Um, and you were there to mm. help ask the questions that they did not want to answer, leading that charge. Is that how you felt at that time as uh, a leader lead- among your colleagues? No, I wasn't leading the charge, but I think all of us were trying to find what the facts were. There was a moment, it's on the record, the transcript of the White House briefing, so I'm not telling a tale out of school, when we were pressing Mike McCurry, who was the press secretary. I can't remember the issue again. It was, what about this? Well, I don't know. So we said about Monica, we're talking about that episode, and before the president had to come clean and before the grand jury or else maybe face the slammer. uh, So they were still saying, oh, he didn't. And we said, well, Mike, go ask the president. If you don't know, he said, I'm not going to do that. Wait a moment. We can't get to President Clinton. You're the press secretary. Why won't you go ask the president? And Mike McCurry said, because I don't want to lie to you. Now, think about that. I thought the next day Mike might be dismissed, but no. Mike McCurry's a great guy. But he wasn't going to be a Ron Ziegler, who was President Nixon's press secretary. Uh, We've talked to press secretaries. I talked to Joe Lockhart. We've spoken to Ari Fleischer. And this balancing act that they play, mm-hmm. they are charged with carrying forward the questions and the elements that the American public and their journalists want answered from the president. And, you know, at the same time, coming back in the other direction to bring the president's word to you, Sam. Yes, but they have one principle, the president. They are there at the pleasure of the president, of course, but they're there to serve the president's interests. When they can't, they ought to resign. If they say, sir, uh, you want me to do this or you want me to say this, and I just believe that's the wrong thing and I can't be part of it, they should have really, uh, but they don't. Now, you have respect for McCurry. Did you enjoy good relationships with press secretaries or did you see them I would like to lens? think so. No, I, uh, Jody Powell, the late Jody Powell, we fought <laughs> with Helen Thomas and others always kind of liked each other. And after he left the White House and Jimmy Carter, we became very good social friends. Um, and, and over the years, almost all of them I've respected and, and thought were, were good uh, press secretaries because they knew how to do it. You have to keep your humor. You have to, when you get attacked by people like me with the most vicious sounding accusations, you you want to well you but you can't do that. That would be the wrong thing to serve your principle. Remember, you're there in the case of George W. Bush, let's say, to further his interests. Indeed. Again, to the extent you can, without believing that you you've traduced uh, all all truth and honesty. So, Sam, as we wrap up our interview, our discussion here on polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius One Ten, XM One Thirty. I, I really want to ask you if you can take a step back and appreciate for so many people in the business 
out of the business, people who grew up learning about American politics and the presidents from you through your reporting. Um, your place in the history of uh, broadcast journalism is secure. I just want to know, um, are you proud of everything that you've done? Do you have... Um, do you look back longingly for things you wish you had done differently or things that no. you wish you'd gone to do that you didn't get a chance to do? Well, there's a great song by Willie Nelson, Nothing I Can Do About It Now. Uh, but the answer to your question is, of course I'm sorry for things I've done that were wrong, reports I did that were misinformed, um, and I'd like to blame it on everybody else. Oh, well, the, the press secretary told me this. No, I've often been too slow to figure something out. I'll tell you this, I've never knowingly told people something I knew to be false in a report. But I've made a lot of mistakes. Anyone who says, whether it's a president or someone like me, well, you know, everything was pretty well done right, is either fooling, trying to fool you or fooling themselves or both. Because no one's that perfect. Um, but in overall, if you now want me to come up having poured ashes and sackcloth <laughs> properly, I think, on myself. Overall, I'm, I'm satisfied that I navigated it as well as, uh, not only as well as I could, which is a cop-out, <laughs> because if you can't navigate it at all, you could say, I navigated it as well as I could, but navigated it well enough so that people who listened to me and watched me were generally informed properly about what was going on, and that's all you can ask. I appreciate you taking the time and for, you know, how you mentored me a bit uh, as a young journalist working for you at ABC, and uh, thanks for joining us. On Remember Polyoptics. this, Adam. In your case, the future is ahead of you. Thank you, Yogi Berra. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Sam. The legendary Sam Donaldson. You know, I, I want to share a story that I was thinking about when Sam was here with me doing this conversation. And it goes back to my early days at This Week. It was This Week with George Stephanopoulos, actually. And Sam played a really critical role as a member of the roundtable in those days. And I learned a lesson the hard way. You see, early morning television is one of those things like a movie set where there's always lots of good food. And one of the things that uh, we used to do for the talent, of which Sam was certainly a part, and I was part of the production staff, would be to uh, have all kinds of sweet treats, bagels, maybe some fresh fruit. But always when Sam came around, there were donuts. And I love me a donut in the morning. Well, I made the mistake of going after the only chocolate donut on that tray. And I learned a lesson that many before me had learned, and I wish someone had told me in advance. Do not touch Sam Donaldson's chocolate glazed donut because that man, it's like ritual. It's tradition. And uh, I just have to tell you, he is the most affable and sincere and generous guy you'd ever want to meet until or unless you take his chocolate donut. So if you find yourself in a green room with Sam Donaldson, from me to you, back off the donut. Uh, we are very glad that we had a chance to talk to the legendary Sam Donaldson here at Polyoptics. It's what we strive to do every week, to get insights and appreciations of what it is to communicate effectively and the elements that make it resonate properly with the American people. In those unguarded moments, the unscripted elements, for Sam, it was uh, a day of violence uh, in 1981 with the President of the United States when he was uh, the victim of an assassin's bullet. 
and for Sam, it was also later on in his career when he lost a dear friend and producer to an act of violence while he was covering a story in Serbia. But for all of us, every week, we're trying to understand better, as we do so well here at POTUS, here at Sirius 110 XM 130, what it means to be engaged in the politics of our country, the politics of the United States. So that's our mission. We hope we've done it well for you this week. And I know that if you enjoyed this conversation, you're going to love what we have coming up in the weeks to come. I want to thank our producer in Washington, Catherine Caperton. And I want to thank all of you for listening. For Josh King, who is not with us this week, I am Adam Belmar in Washington.